All right, book of Jeremiah, book of Jeremiah. will be chapter 2 and a little bit of chapter 3. Hopefully we can finish all of that in the first hour. Um, obviously, we, we're supposed to be much further along in the study of Jeremiah, but that's okay. I can't, I can't necessarily worry about that. There was a part of me, because we're a little behind, there's a section here that I've been waiting to, to, to talk about here at church. And I keep waiting, keep waiting, and things ha- keep happening. So um, I was going to just skip it and just say, you know what? We've got to get through like four, five, and six. We need to be in chapter seven. But I, I feel like because of what we've covered here in church, that to skip this would would kind of just mess everything up. Because the la- last Sunday, we spent two hours looking at the types of figurative language. We spent two hours here at church doing that. And if you remember, we talked about simile, metaphor, idiom, euphemism, irony and sarcasm, hyperbole, maxim, proverb, parable, allegory, and personification. We looked at all of that. We looked at some biblical examples of that. Um, I, I challenge people to go through the book of Jeremiah and find all of the figurative language types and say which type it is. So um, that definitely was a major emphasis. I mean, I spent two hours on it. And the reason I waited till last Sunday to talk about it is because anyone reading the book of Jeremiah will realize there's a lot of figurative language. Whether you know the different types, you have to realize there's a lot of figurative language being used here. So I wanted everyone to understand those are all the types, and probably every single one of those types is found in the book of Jeremiah, probably relatively quick. So I could just say, okay, just know that and look for it. Now let's move ahead. But very early in Jeremiah, we find this. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to try in this hour. I don't know if we're going to be able to accomplish this. I'm not going to be able to go too in-depth in each one of these, but I'm going to, I may try to show you and, and, and just so that you know, whenever you're dealing with figurative language, this is always, I'll just at least talk about this. The danger with it is you kind of get the figurative language, you kind of understand it, and then what you can attempt to do is just trying to take that to like some kind of, like you start trying to look at every little aspect of the figurative language, and like, okay, well, this could represent this, and this could represent this, and this could represent this. And the further you take it, Sometimes you can just kind of walk into almost either heresy or just it just becomes absurd. Like the idea of God giving Israel a certificate of divorce. Okay, well, all right, so God, is, God got a divorce? Okay, well, now not only did God get a divorce, if we then say that he replaced Israel with the church, then he got divorced and got remarried. Well, then that leads to all kinds of problems. Okay, well, wait a minute. If he didn't get a divorce, or if he got a divorce from Israel, but brought them back, and then the church is also called the bride, then does he have two wives? So then is he a polygamist? Like, this starts leading, like, you, you can take these kind of figurative language ideas, and you can just run them to a level where you're like, I don't know what, I'm, what we're doing here. So we, that's one of the things you have to be careful. So with figurative language, this is same, this is same true, well, part, one of the types of figure, figurative language is a parable, right? With the parables, the same thing can happen. If you take those parables and you try to, to try to assign each aspect of the parable some kind of spiritual meaning, 
you can find yourself, or theological or doctrinal meaning, you can literally walk yourself into some kind of heresy. So typically with figurative language, this, I think this is the basic principle, all right? So one, there's a danger. Two, I think the basic thing with figurative language is sometimes to step back and do what? Just try to figure out, what's the basic idea being put forth here? But what's just the basic idea? And not, because if we can, because typically, in theory, now I say this in theory, we should be able to come to an agreement, in theory, on the basic meaning of it, right? In theory, we should be able to say, okay, this is what the figurative language is saying. I'm not saying we're going to understand every single part of it, but we can definitely should be able to figure out the main idea. And I think in the book of Jeremiah, you have to do that over and over and over. I think in the book of Jeremiah, you have to constantly step back and go, okay, what's the main idea here? Because there's so many little nuances and diff- there's, you'll just get lost in the book. So that, so we're going to look through some of this that I think are basically, we'll call them eight illustrations, eight uses of figurative language that happens very early on and we'll... We'll see if this can take this apart. And Siri is trying to answer some question that I didn't ask. So let me let Siri. uh... Yeah. Let me see. I don't know why Siri is trying to answer a question here. (laughs) It's no big deal that you don't know. Yeah. Because I. Thank you, Siri. Thank you for that encouraging word. It's, it's no big deal that you don't know. Don't feel bad about yourself. Hey, I know, you're, I know you're preaching, but it's no big deal that you don't know the answer to anything you preach. Okay, all right. Thank you, Siri. All right. Now, now that Siri is done talking to us, here's what we're going to do. Go to uh, Jeremiah chapter 2. First, we, we go to verse 9. I'm not going to try to walk back through all, everything and remind us of everything. I'm just going to try to get us to where we're going. In Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 9, we have these words from the King James. Wherefore, I will yet plead with you, saith the Lord, and with your children's children will I plead. Just because when I did a review of uh, two two teachings from Dr. J. Vernon McGee, he did the same thing. A lot of sermons do the same thing. That pleading there, we do not believe is what? It's not a begging or like, hey, please come back. It's what? It's a laying out his case, laying out his charge. In fact, the NIV translates it, my charge, I'm going to give you my charges against you, right? That's a radically different approach to it, okay? And I just think if we get that wrong, then, then everything else. And immediately, what does he do after he's supposedly going to plead? I don't think he's going to plead with them. He starts laying out his charge against them, does he not? He tells them to pass over and go look for what? Find a nation that's done what? Change their gods, which are yet no gods. But my people have changed their glory for that which doth not profit. That's not a pleading. That's laying out his case against them, right? And then look in verse uh, 13. For my people have committed two evils, that they have forsaken me the fountain of living waters, and hewed them out cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. And already you're getting a little bit of figurative language, right? He's not referring to them digging an actual well that won't hold actual water, right? He's using the illustration that they are pursuing that spiritually, 
right? That spiritually, they're digging a well that is broken, therefore it's going to hold no water, and they're turning from what? The fountain of living water, which is God. That's figurative language. I mean, immediately you're, you're, you're seeing it, you're realizing it. Now, the goal there is not to take that to try to break that down to crazy levels, just the basic concept. God is a, the real living God, a fountain of living water. There's, he's really there. There's really, he's a real, he's really there. And therefore there is benefit in pursuing him versus turning your back from God and doing what? Digging a well that's not going to hold any water that is of no profit and no value, all right? Then we read, uh, we talked about the, the young lions. We, we, we kind of went into a little bit of that. There's a lot there to, to figure out. We're not going to review all of that. But then go to verse 19. All right? The first, we'll call this the first like illustrative language, figurative language that we want to focus on is in verse 19. And what do we see in verse 19? Thine own wickedness shall correct thee, and thy backsliding shall reprove thee. Know therefore and see that it is an evil thing and bitter that thou hast forsaken the Lord thy God, and that my fear is not in thee, saith the Lord God of hosts. The first kind of illustrative term, kind of figurative language is the word backslidings or backslider. He uses that idea of a backslider. And when we refer to a backslider, what do we ultimately mean by it? We, we, did some, we did some study on this. Just the general meaning of the word. If you have a Bible dictionary, look up, just remember the general meaning of the word. And if you need to use the Blue Letter Bible app, you can do that as well. Do you have any dictionaries? All right. Yeah, I have it open right here. Yeah, just we want just the basic definition of Yeah, to revert to sin or wrongdoing to lapse morally or in the practice of religion. Backsliding is a term found mainly in what book? The book of Jeremiah, they give a number of places where it's used. It refers to the lapse of the nation of Israel into paganism and idolatry. Now, it says the lapse of the nation of Israel into paganism and idolatry. So, clearly in Jeremiah, it's very much focused on idolatry, right? It's very much focused on a false religion. So, it's the sense that Israel has the true God, right? I mean, that's that whole section, right? Hey, go find these other nations who changed their God. Well, Israel has the true God. They have the fountain of living water and they turn and go, in a sense, backwards, back to, lapse into a false religion. But we can understand that idea of backsliding, right? We can understand that. Like if you look up the word in the English dictionary, you, you can use your phone. Back, just look up the word backslide, just to the backslide. Okay, the way of just relapsing into a bad way or error. We all know this. And if you think about it, that is a descriptive term, right? It's a figurative language, right? It's the idea of, of sliding backwards. And, I, I, and some would argue the idea of sliding backwards is, is kind of more descriptive. Now, see how far you take this, but it kind of is more descriptive because it's not, it doesn't even really seem to describe 
a, like, I'm just going to turn and walk backwards, but it's like someone's just being sliding backwards, kind of just gradually going back to it. And if you th- we think of our, how that applies to our Christian life, it's pretty simple, it's pretty straightforward, and it de- demonstrates the difficulty of the Christian life, right? Because on one hand, we've changed our mind about God and about sin, but we still have something in us that is beyond backslidden, right? We have a nature that is completely fallen. So if we have a nature that is completely fallen and we're trying to go one way, then we're going to, we're, we're in a sense, backsliding is going to be a constant thing. Now it can turn, it turns in, now here's what happens. That's a, just a general, if you, if we, now Jeremiah is going to talk about it a lot. I think it's mentioned like seven times just in chapter three, right? If you look at all the things Jeremiah says about backsliding, and this is, this is what I want you to see about figurative language. It's just giving us the basic idea that Israel keeps sliding back to idolatry and moral lapse, right? It's a basically a general term. What happens when Christianity, preachers, Bible colleges, seminaries take that word? What ha- inevitably happens when that word starts getting discussed in churches? Immediately. How far can someone backslide? And either still be saved or determine that they were never saved. It, 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 is Jeremiah arguing about it from a soteriological standpoint? No, what's his, his argument is using a figurative language to say, hey guys, you're going backwards, you're falling back into that which is of no profit. You're walking away from me. But then we take it and like, we try to ext- extrapolate from it an entire theology of soteriology, a whole, a whole thing of salvation. And I don't know if that's what's intended here. Right? I don't think it's intended. Does the word backsliding, backslide even appear in the New Testament? Yeah, I can look it up. Yeah, I can see. Look up the, you can look up uh, backslide, backsliding, backsliders. We already worked on this on, uh, I think, uh, Wednesday night. We looked up all the references. We were working through all of them. Yeah, so basically Jeremiah, I think it's in Hosea, maybe. Yeah, that's it. Not even used in the New Testament, right? So then we take it and go, well, okay, if you do this and this and this and this, you're backslidden. Okay, well, but if you keep doing this and this and this, well, you prove you were never saved. Well, wait a minute. Is, that, is, that, is, is this the argument? Is that the argument? I don't think that's the argument. So once again, you've got to be careful where you take this figurative language. All I know is that to be considered a backslider is just any what? Just in a sense, any going backwards. Any lapse. Well, Christians, we lapse all the time. From, from what we're supposed to be, which is pursuing holiness and righteousness, we lapse all the time because we have a nature inside of us that never moved forward. So I, I, just, I just think you, we should be careful there, all right? Then go to uh, Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 20. So there's backsliding, backsliders, right? That's the first kind of figurative language. The second, Jeremiah 2, 20. Now in this one, I'm not going to spend all the time on this one, but there's, there's all kinds of issues with verse 20. For of old time I have broken thy yoke and burst thy bands, and thou saidest, I will not transgress. 
Just so that you know, there was radically different translations from the Septuagint, the Latin Vulgate, and the King James. And I bet you there's a different translation from the King James to the NIV. How does the NIV translate Jeremiah 2.20? Completely different. Now, now please note, Jeremiah 2.20, just so that you know, I covered this in a a podcast, so I don't want to go into great detail here, but I just want to briefly mention. The issue with Jeremiah 2.20, just so that everyone know, who's breaking the bonds and who's breaking the yoke? Latin Vulgate and the Septuagint basically says they did. They broke the bond. They broke the yoke. King James says God did. According to the King James, they said we will not trespass. According to the NIV, Septuagint, Latin Vulgate, they said we will not serve. Radically different, like not even in the same, like not even in the same universe, Okay. So there's all kinds of different ways of translating it and working it through. I don't want to go through all of that right now. It's on the podcast. But this gets us to where we're going to go. Look at verse 21. The next a little bit of figurative language. I know there's some figurative language in 20, but we'll go to 21. Right, everybody ready? Yet I have planted thee a noble vine, holy a right seed, how then art thou turned into a degenerate plant of a strange vine unto me? All right, the next figurative language here is he refers to them as what? A vine. Okay, a vine. Now, immediately people will start doing all kinds of things with this. You can go to Isaiah 5. I know there's all kinds of cross-references, but let's just stop for a second. Now, the, what do you think the emphasis here in this figurative language? He refers to them as a vine. Now, you can start going all kinds of, okay, well, that means, you see, uh, that means God planted them. And if they're a vine, then they were supposed to produce fruit. And then, like, you can, you see how far you can start going with all of that, right? Okay, well, wait a minute. If they're the vine, wait, if they're the vine, then who are the, well, I thought he's the vine. Who, okay, you can just start going all kinds of stuff with this. That's verse 21. Okay, right. Okay, there's the vine. Now, here's the question. Just generally speaking, what's the main idea here? What's the main idea? What's the main idea of it being a vine, of, of that, them being described as a vine? Okay, right. Okay. Um, Right, right. I, yeah, what, what, I'm, what I'm saying is if we, we, we take the idea of a vine, we can start running all kinds of, we can go far with it, right? Okay, so they were planted, they were suppo- supposed to produce fruit, and, and then that goes to Isaiah 5, and then, well, wait a minute, Jesus is the vine, we're the branches, so does that not fit? Okay, how does that work? Like, I'm saying you can start trying, okay, what does it all mean? That, I think that's where we start going again the wrong direction. I think just it's another figurative language simply to illustrate what? Just that they're backslidden, right? They were a vine that turned into what? A degenerate plant. Is that not what it says in verse 21? And a strange vine. Hey, you're supposed, uh, you were planted this way, and then you went 
the other way. It's just figuratively. Like, I don't know how far you're to take all of that and go, well, they're the vine, so this represents this and this. I, I think you've got to be careful with that. It's just another figurative way to say, you're a backslider. Oh, wait, you still don't understand? You're a vine that turned into a degenerate plant. Does everyone see that? All right. Um, and then look at verse 22. For though thou wash thee and take thee much soap, yet thine iniquity is marked before me, saith the Lord God. Now, there's a little bit of, of figurative language being used there, is there not? Right? In verse 22. Right? Um, I'm going to read it from a different uh, translation. Jeremiah 2, that's verse 22. Even if you wash me with lye and use a great amount of bleach, the stain of your iniquity is still in front of me. Now, what's kind of the, what's the figurative language? What, what's the figure? Now, you can, we can just write this one down. Uh, we, if you want to write this one down, I don't have this one down. We can spend a little bit of time in it. What, what's the basic concept he's trying to get across here? Now, for though you, you can wash thee with, uh, the, the King James uses the word, what, uh, nitric, nitri, nite? Yeah, um, let's see. Yeah, it says, uh, this one says, nitre is a, a mineral uh, deposited on the shores of some lakes. That's what uh, this one says. All right, but, um, and take thee as much soap, yet thine iniquity is marked before thee. Basically, this is simply trying to say, again, you can try to break down, well, wait a minute, why do they use this language? And wait, what is this chemical? And where is it found? And how is it used, right? The point is, what's the simple message here in this figurative language? Yeah, that you can't wash away your sins through your efforts. Right? You can take all the baths, you can find the best soaps, you can find the best chemicals, you can find the best natural elements that you can find that may wash up on a lake shore, but you're not going to be able to do what? Wash away your sins. So, at a roundabout way, the figurative language is the att- someone trying to wash away the guilt, trying to wash away their sin. They're trying to take a bath. They're using, what, whether it's, <clears throat> depending on your translation, one says lye, bleach, what is the, uh, soda, is what it says, okay, all right, all the, all, all the different things, it doesn't even really matter, like, that's what I'm saying, with figurative language, you can start trying to run all of that and figure what it is, and then someone will do a cross-reference with this, it, the simple message is what? You can't wash away your sin, you can't wash away your sin. Impossible. Right? You're, you're so stained that you can't wash it away. Okay? Then the next one, all right? So we have a vine, we have a backsliding, we have a vine. You can put this one down. You're unable to, you know, someone who needs to be cleansed but cannot clean themselves with the best soaps they can find, right? However you want to describe that one. And then what's the next one? Verse 23, how can you say that I'm not polluted? I have not gone after Balaam. See thy way in the valley. Know what thou hast done. Thou art a swift dromedary traversing her ways. And what's a dromedary? A 
fast camel or a camel, a swift she-camel, all right? What in the world is that supposed to reference? This is definitely figurative language. Okay, now some, okay, some focus on her speed, right? So maybe if we focus on the speed, then is it what, that, that she is what? Running to her sin. Like you're so fast to do what? To go the other direction. All right, now one commentary says it this way. Um, a swift young camel could cause a lot of damage if turned loose in a crowded place, for it would be reckless in its direction and unsteady in its gait. So some people focus on that it was like a, a, a fast camel that's unstable in her ways, like don't, just running all over the place, right? Like going here, going here, going here. So it's almost like they're running about. Hey, guys, you're right. You don't think you're guilty. Isn't that the first part of that? You don't say you're guilty, but you're just a fast camel running over to Balaam, running to this idol, running to this, running to this, and running to that. You're, you're completely out of, almost like you're out of control. Now, some people are like, well, wait a minute. Does a camel, what does a camel represent? What does fast represent? You see how people can take it and you just run, and people will just start losing their minds. And I, and I know this for certain because Jeremiah was one of the major books that Harold Camping used when he started tell, telling us that the church age was over, the corporate church was under the control of Satan. You have to leave your church. If you stayed in your church, you were taking the mark of the beast. He used Jeremiah for most of that because everything started representing this and this represented that. Don't get caught up in that. What's the basic? So, so far in this figurative language, what have we seen? You've backslidden, and almost a way to re-emphasize that is you were a vine that turned into a degenerate plant, and you're so dirty that you can't clean yourself taking all the baths with the best soaps that can be found, and you are a out-of-control camel. Okay? Even though they said they're not defiled. A fast camel, out-of-control, not steady, running all over the place. Now, please note, this goes very well with what was said. I, that this is not God pleading with them. This is God laying out his case against them, is he not? He's laying out. Now, what's next? So we've got the, we got the fast camel. What do we have in verse 24? All right. King James says, a wild ass used, used to the wilderness that snuffeth up the wind at her pleasure. In her occasion, who can turn her away? So this is a, a wild donkey who is used to the wilderness, right? A wild cam- camel that is used to the wilderness. They're, they're, they, they feel at home there, right? Okay, and they feel at home, and what are they doing in the wilderness? The King James says, snuffeth up the wind at her pleasure. How does the NIV translate that? All right, she uh, she sniffs wind in the heat of her desire. Okay, this is a donkey that is and the time to mate, right? <laughs> That's a nice way to put it, right? Okay, <laughs> all right. Is that a good way to put it? 
right? And what, are, what is this camel, or camel, this donkey doing? Yeah, looking for a mate, running around. Where, where's the mate? Where's the mate? Like that, like this is a, this is, how, if the camel was fast and out of control, this is now the donkey who is controlled by what? Desire, right? Desire, out of control desire. Cannot control the desire. In fact, it goes on to say, yeah, exactly. Okay, a wild ash used in the uh, used to the wilderness that snuffeth up the wind at her pleasure in her occasion. Who can turn her away? How does the NIV translate in her occasion? Right before. Yeah, in her heat, who can who can who can restrain her? Who can turn her away? All they that seek her will not weary themselves. In her month, they shall find her. How does the NIV translate that? Okay. Yeah, yeah. They're they're not going to have to. They're not going to weary themselves looking for her. She's going to come to them. And she's going to, like, like they're not going to have to do anything. Right? I mean, this is a, gra- it's pretty graphic, is it not? It's very graphic image, right? Now, again, do we have to try to figure every little detail? No, we don't have to, we can just step back. And what does this demonstrate? They're so filled with their lust, especially, specifically speaking, for what? Their idols, their their, their idolatry. They're, they're, they're so, like, idols don't have to come looking for them. They're going to be right there saying, here I am. Here I am. I, and you're, <laughs> the idols don't have to go chasing any. No one has to go chasing her. She's going to be there. I mean, that's a, that's a very, it's a very derogatory, it's a very derogatory uh, thing. You, are we getting the idea? Figurative language is being used to tell them that they are backsliding. They were a vine that's turned into a degenerate plant. They're, they, are, they are so dirty that the best bath soaps in the world won't help them. They're an out-of-control, fast camel, and they are an, oh, oh, there's no way to put this, a wild donkey in heat. There's just no way to get around that. That's not probably what they want to be referred to as. I, I think we can uh, safely agree. Right? Then verse, uh, we'll go verse 25. Withhold thy foot from being unshod and thy throat from thirst, but thou saidest there is no hope, no, for I have loved strangers and after them will I go. Again, a little bit still more figurative language. And then verse 26. As the thief is ashamed when he is found, so is the house of Israel ashamed. They, their kings, their princes, and their priests, and their prophets. Saying to a stock, thou art my father, and to a stone, thou hast brought me forth. For they have turned their back unto me, and not their face, but in the time of their trouble, they will say, arise and save us. What's kind of the figurative language being used here in verse uh, 
25, really in verse 25, or 26. At verse 26, the figurative language is kind of comparing them, in a sense, to a thief that is ashamed. A thief that is ashamed. How does the NIV translate verse 26? Okay, right. So this is the, he's saying, you're like a thief that's, been, that's ashamed, that's disgraced. You've been caught. You, it, it's, it's open to you. And what did Israel do? They turned their back from, from God, and, and, and that, they, they should realize that. But that it, this is what's going to happen to them when they find themselves in trouble. They're going to call on God to save them. So he's like, you should be ashamed you have been caught. You have been found out. So it's not so I have to go in and try to figure out all the different things the thief could represent. It's very simple. It's just very simple. Don't take it too far. So far, what do we have? You're backsliders. You're a vine that turned into a degenerate plant. Yeah, yeah, you, you, you're so dirty in your sin that you, not, you can do everything you want to do, but you cannot wash yourself clean. You are an out-of-control fast camel. You're a donkey in heat, and you're an ashamed thief. Everybody see that? Yeah, I mean, it was very, very difficult. Verse 28, but they are thy gods that thou hast, uh, but where are thy gods that thou hast made thee? Let them arise, if they can save thee in the time of thy trouble. For according to the number of thy cities are thy gods, O Judah. Now, that's pretty serious. You have as many gods as you have cities, all right? That's pretty, that's pretty strong language, is it not? Right? And then go, go, find your, go find those gods to help you out. Verse 29, wherefore will you plead, wherefore will you plead with me? Ye uh, all have transgressed against me, saith the Lord. Now that verse 29, we're back to the word plead. How is it used in the NIV? Bring charges? Right, so please note, we have this kind of back and forth, right? God is like, hey, hey, I'm going to lay out my charges against you. And now here, what is he saying? You, oh, you've got charges against me? You're the ones in the wrong. You're the ones who have sinned, not me. And then what's the next verse? In vain have I smitten your children. They receive no correction. Your own sword hath devoured your, your prophets like a destroying lion. There's the next figurative language, a destroying lion. A destroying lion. Using this illustration of a destroying lion. Now, what is he trying to say about this destroying lion? What, what, what's the image here? What's the image? What's the, the figurative language pointing to here about the destroying lion? Right. So the, the point is, is that the, the prophets have come to try to correct them, right? Because he looks at the first part, in vain have I smitten your children that receive no correction. He sent the prophets to rebuke them, to correct them. And it seems like, what did they do? They went after them, they attacked them, they killed them as a destroying lion. You're, he's using lots of animal illustrations, is he not? 
right? We're using a lot of animal illustrations here. And what's the point of all of these animal illustrations? The point here is that, hey, guys, you now have become a lion. Not only are you a out-of-control camel, not only are you a donkey in heat, you're a lion that destroys what? The prophets of God. I mean, he's laying out his charge against them, and he's doing so in a figurative way, all right? Now, look at verse, uh, see, that's 2.30, I think verse 31. O generation, see ye the word of the Lord. Have I been uh, a wilderness unto Israel, a land of darkness? Wherefore, say my people, we are lords, we will come no more unto thee. Now, look at verse 32. The next figurative language. Can a maid forget her ornaments or a bride her attire? Yet my people have forgotten me days without number. What's, the, what's this figurative language? They're like a forgetful woman. Right? Or, okay, how does this one? Oh, okay, all right. Okay, good point, good point. No, but you have forgotten me. Right, so, so should we say, are they like a forgetful woman, or how should we say this? He's using, for, he's using a woman who won't forget to contrast their forgetfulness. So they are more forgetful than a woman. Like, how do you, how should we word it? So he's contrasting women. He's using women who won't forget these specific things to contrast their forgetfulness. So, how should we how should we word this? Right. Yeah, they're very important. So, as a as a woman because I think I made I think I made a joke in the podcast that that, that you know, they use women because women are forgetful, but I think maybe the the rea- the way that we look at this is not so much that the women are forgetful that the women are not forgetful to those things. That's, no, that's, but you forget God. So how should we, use, how should we word this, uh, this figurative language? You're forgetful. Should we just say forgetful? He's contra- he's, but he's using, do you see how he's using a figurative language, right? Yeah, he, oh, he's definitely trying to, definitely a contrast going on, right? Hey, here's these women. They don't forget these things, but you forget God. So... Right, right. Right. So, but I'm just saying, how do we word this? It, it is figurative, is it not? Right? Because it's using these women who won't forget these things. Right? Now, is he saying, are you like a woman who won't forget those unimportant things, but then you're the woman who will forget the important things? So is it still kind of saying the women? I don't know. I think it's more just a contrast, right? I think it's more of a contrast. Yeah, you, you have forgotten me. So we'll just say they are forgetful. Let's just do it that way, right? I wanted to connect the women to it, but now that we, now that we look at it, yeah, I see that yeah, I wasn't correctly, completely looking at it. And then that brings us to what? Now we can continue. We'll just read this. We'll continue. We'll, we'll, okay, we'll, we'll just continue this uh, because we got time. All right, we'll look at verse 33. Why trimmest thou thy way to seek love? Therefore thou hast also taught the wicked ones thy ways. 
right? Also in thy skirts is found the blood of the souls of the poor innocents. I have not found it by secret search, but upon all these. Yet thou sayest, because I am innocent, surely his anger shall turn from me. Behold, I will plead with thee, because thou sayest, I have not sinned. Now, I will plead with thee in verse 35. What, what's again? I'm going to bring charges. It's still the idea, right? Right? Does the NIV translate it, bring charges? Okay, I will pass judgment. All right. It's still the idea. He's not begging or pleading here, right? Yeah, they're, they're, they're like, hey, God's not upset with them. They, they don't even realize God is upset with them. They think they're completely innocent, right? Then verse uh, 36. Why gaddest thou about so much to change thy way, thou also shalt be ashamed of Egypt as thou was ashamed of Assyria. Yet thou shalt go forth from him and thine hand upon thine head, for the Lord hath rejected thy confidences, and thou shalt not prosper in them. All of these charges are simply, now he's got one more major illustrative language to use, but so far what do we have? We have their backslidden, a vine turns into a degenerate plant, someone who cannot clean themselves no matter how good a soap they find, an out of control fast camel, a donkey in heat, and a shame thief, they become a destroying lion killing the prophets, and I will say forgetful. I say I wrote down forgetful woman, but that's not completely accurate because it's actually the women not forgetting, right? I think I read it as the women forgetting. Okay, they're forgetting what is important, right? Okay, and then next, chapter 3, starting in verse 1. They say, if a man put away his wife and she go from him and become another man's, Shall he return unto her again? Shall not thy land be greatly polluted? But thou hast played the harlot with many lovers, yet return again to me, saith the Lord. Lift up thine eyes unto the high places, and see where thou hast not been leaned with. And the ways hast thou set for them, in the ways hast thou sat for them as the Arabian in the wilderness, and thou hast polluted the land with thy whoredoms and with thy wickedness. Therefore, the showers have been withholden, and there hath been no latter rain, and thou, had, uh, and thou hadst a whore's forehead, thou refusest to be ashamed. Will thou not from this time cry unto me? My father, thou art the guide of my youth. Um, Will he reserve his anger forever? Will he keep it to the end? Behold, thou hast spoken and done evil things as thou couldest. The next figurative language is what? A harlot. A harlot. They have basically become, and there's just no nice way to say it, they've become a whore. They've become a harlot, and they are doing what? They're going after these false gods. I mean, he's, 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 the figurative language just keeps doubling down, does it not? It's just, it's just repeat. It's almost very repetitive. It's like, you're like, we got the point the first. This is where someone in a, listening to a sermon would be like, we got the point the first time. But God doesn't care if you got the point. He's doubling down on it. 
You've become a, you, in fact, we can just refer to this, you've become an, a spiritual adulterer. You're committing spiritual adultery against God. You are, you're cheating on God. You are running around. You've been unfaithful to God. You're doing all of these things to God. And this is the thing most people don't spend a lot of time considering, but it, it is a, it's greatly condemned here. In fact, he's used this language a couple of times, has he not? He's talked about prostituting themselves, playing the harlot. All figurative language. All figurative language. So if we go through all of it, a backslider, a vine, someone who who cannot cleanse themselves with the best soap, an out-of-control camel, a donkey in heat, and a shame thief, a destroying line, forgetful, connected with women, right? But obviously forgetful. And then a harlot, chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. Now, at that point, they should be greatly convicted, should they not? But it appears over and over and over, how, how, what is their reaction or how do they think? Well, they don't think they've done anything wrong. They think they're innocent. They think, they're, they think that they're perfectly, they think they're perfectly okay. All right? Uh, um, Okay, I know so, someone in the comments was talking about the, they're, they're forgetful to the point of neglect, right? Like how foolish, how, uh, how ridiculous for a woman to forget a wedding garments. Uh, so yeah, that, I think that's, it would be ridiculous for a woman to forget that. So, but there's, they're, they're, that, their forgetfulness is completely ridiculous because they're forgetting God, all right? So, but here is some, a couple of things to, to, to think about, all right? Just a couple of things. First, I don't know what jumps out at you in all of that figurative language. I don't know what jumps out at you, right? But what I guess to me, what kind of jumps out through this, is it kind of shocking to you, kind of, uh, I mean, even when you get to chapter 3, what does it say in verse 3? How does the NIV translate verse 3? Jeremiah 3.3. 3. Okay. All right, in other words, you have a brazen look. The King James has a whore's forehead. But you have the brazen look of a prostitute. In other words, you are out there flaunting it. You're out there just flaunting it, and you refuse. You're not even shamed. You're not even embarrassed at all. And so what what this can demonstrate, is it not utterly frightening to you that here are God, now remember, they've got some benefits that we will never even comprehend, Right? They have seen God move and work. Like they're not that far removed from seeing God do very major things. God speaking directly to people. They got miracles. They, the presence of God. Like they've, they've, they got things that we can't even comprehend, right? Okay. Yeah, I mean, God doing these great miracles, right? Oh, we, we've got what? A Bible, right? Right, well, that, yeah, that leads to major problems, okay, right? Because we, we right, do what? Well, no, we, okay, that leads to a major theological issue because uh, clearly David had the Holy Spirit because he said, take not your spirit from me. So we talked about this, that, that clearly that there's always the idea that they didn't have the Holy Spirit, but in the Old Testament, there's plenty of scriptures that indicate clearly they did. 
right? Do, do I? There, there is, there's arguments that that's not the case. We've talked about that. We talked about this. Uh, Grudem and his systematic theology uh, talked about this. So yeah, I can't, I can't get into all of that. I'm saying is they clearly have things that we cannot comprehend, all right? We don't have those things. We have the scriptures, right? Now, I know Christians will say we have the Holy Spirit, but if we have the Holy Spirit doing all the things Christians say the Holy Spirit is doing, then we should basically be without sin and we should all understand the Bible, which clearly we keep sinning and we don't understand the Bible. So that that raises questions of what the Holy Spirit is doing. So I'm not going to get into that Holy Spirit discussion. What I just want to show you is with everything they have going for them, they do what? They don't understand their spiritual condition. They don't see the problem. So to me, that should scare all of us that God's people are vulnerable not seeing the state of our spiritual condition, that we can be blind to it. They've had prophets try to tell them, right? They've had examples of, like Judah has seen Uh, what happened to Israel. They've had so much and they couldn't see it. So the question always is, is when we think that we're okay, are we really okay? What, what, What does it take for us to truly see our spiritual condition? Because you would, and let's, come on, let's just be honest. If someone was trying to say, you're this, you're this, you're this, you're, did he just not go through a list of things? We would be like, look, I get it. Okay, stop. But God keeps, do, keeps just using all of this language to try to show them how bad you are. And look where it ends in chapter 3. They're like a brazen prostitute, right? At, at 3 verses 1 through 5, right? You're, you're, they're a brazen prostitute. You don't even care. You're not even remotely embarrassed. So I want you to just consider the possibility of how blind we can be to our own spiritual condition. Like that... Like, it takes some serious work on you as a believer to sometimes stop and really be open and honest with where you are spiritually. Like, are you a backslider? Are you a vine that's turned into a degenerate plant? Are you someone who is so dirty that you, no matter how hard you try to cleanse yourself, you need, uh, you, you, it's not going to work? Are you an out-of-control camel? Are you a donkey in heat? Are you uh, an ashamed thief? That you know that you you should you should see where what your condition is like all of those are you a destroying line who will not listen to the word of God you simply try to cut it off and and and, and do away with it are you so forgetful and neglectful that you would be forgetting like oh you know you would be you're so forgetful that you forget God where a woman won't even forget things that relate to these uh, other issues like that like you have to stop and ask yourself. Because I think we can read this and nobody even feels any conviction. Right? People can read this and just go, oh, well, you know, yeah, that's great, man. Israel was really messed up. Judah was really messed up. But aren't we always, we're, we have 20-20 vision when it comes to everyone else's sin. And we're pretty much blind when it comes to our own. And what, it, what this is trying to say is there should be what? Shame. There should be Conviction. Right? So I want you to consider that. And then the second thing is I want you to consider the, the reality of spiritual adultery, which no, never gets any press. Right? No, 
spiritual adultery gets no press. Zero. Right? Is there, is, there, is there scandal for being a spiritual adulterer? No. Churches are filled. Have you ever seen anyone church disciplined for spiritual adultery? No. You know, you're never going to have, because the whole church would be church disciplined, right? We're all spiritual adulterers because are we not always pursuing other things more than we pursue God? Yes, I mean, over and over and over and over. We've got, we've got, in fact, what do I constantly say? When we talk about idolatry, where, where, where is the real idol? Us, we're the idol. All the other things that, Christianity has so messed up idolatry, right? We look at the external things and go, don't let that PlayStation become your idol. Don't let, you know, don't let social media become your idol. Don't let your job become your idol. Don't let your those things are just the thing serving the idol. The idol is yourself, right? Why, why, do you, why are you attracted to all of those things? They please self. Self is the idol, right? We do things because it brings us great pleasure and satisfaction. That's why we pursue things. That's why we do things. Because we want us to be pleased and to be happy and to be, instead of saying, nope, I'm going to set aside self for God. We went all, look, everyone in the church would be guilty of spiritual adultery, but nobody seems convicted by it. Nobody seems to be convicted by it. And it's just really weird. Like that, that's spiritual adultery can just be happening out of control. We can be like the we can be like a donkey in heat running around. Nobody even we, know, we don't even have to go anywhere because I mean, in other words, nothing has to come to us. We're already there, right? We're like the donkey in heat. We're like, hey, you don't need to tire yourself out looking for me. I'll be right there. We're that out of control, and we're like, yeah. So what? Yeah, yeah. Where are you going? I'm gonna go walk walk the street corner, right? I'm going to go flaunt it because I got no shame. We don't even realize it. And then we'll be where, but then there's other sins that we do what with? Oh, everybody gets mad, everybody gets upset, and, we, and we're going to yell and scream about it. And, and that, well, but there's these others that we don't even see. So we have to understand the concern or the danger of us being so blind we don't see our own issues. We have to understand the, the dangers of spiritual uh, reality, and, and, I, and I think just number three, we'll just throw it in, we need to be more concerned with our sin than anybody else's. Not, that's not necessarily from the text, but I think it's just a, a, a very important point. All right? Now, we'll stop there. Okay. Lord God, we come before you this morning. Thank you for an opportunity for us to work through this uh, section. Thank you for helping us, or helping me, Uh, correct uh, some maybe things I misunderstood in this. And Lord, I pray that as we continue to work through the book of Jeremiah, we will not only understand the book, but see our own sins and be convicted and feel shame. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said,